Thank you for listening to Sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Reshaped. Reshaped is a 13-week series walking through the book of Ephesians. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to heart, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give, give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Stonehouse Church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse, and we're glad you're here. If you're new with us, uh, Sarah mentioned we have some Connect cards. Uh, you can give us some information, help us be in touch with you. Uh, more than anything, we want you to know <clears throat> that... Uh, we are here to point you to Jesus. Our main goal in everything we do here as a church is to do that. As we look at his word in and uh, week in and week out, we want to see the risen Christ. We want to um, be gazing upon his work for us. Um, we want to wrestle with the struggles that we have, real world struggles, doubts, fears, um, understanding that not a single one of us lives in perfection. Um, and so we are relieved to look on the one who has lived in perfection, knowing that he did that for us. Um, and so as followers of Christ and even as uh, skeptics or doubters who might be in this place, we always want to be looking to Jesus uh, to allow him to challenge us, to allow him to comfort us, uh, to allow his word to uh, bear fruit in our hearts and our lives. And so that's why we walk through scripture and we really want to just do that faithfully as a church. Um, and we're in the midst of walking through Ephesians. If you haven't been with us, uh, we are more than halfway through now of the book of Ephesians. 
uh, spent a good six weeks in the first three chapters of Ephesians looking at the gospel story in some very profound and deep ways as Paul unfolded that story for us. Um, and then we talked about this last week, how the, the last few chapters of Ephesians are um, filled with commands. In fact, almost all of the commands in the book are in the, the latter three chapters uh, of the book um, and not in the first three chapters. And so we see a marked turn in the book when we enter into Ephesians chapter 4, um, that Paul is making a, a dramatic transition in what he's writing to the Ephesians church. And so we need to pay attention to that transition as well, that so much of the story up to uh, through verses or chapters 1, 2, and 3 was about God's work in history in Christ to make us new and to show us his glory. And that the, the, the commands following that are to flow out of the renewedness of life that Christ has brought into our lives. And there's a very important distinction there. We'll get into it again a little bit this week. And it has to do with how the commands are made and how these statements are made. All of the statements previous to chapter 4 are statements about work that has been accomplished. Uh, it's, it's, it's about the goodness of God. It's about the truth of who Jesus is, about how God worked in history through Christ to make us a new people and, and the ramifications of that new work, that it's put us together with a group of people called the church, that it's gotten rid of all, uh, all divides of ethnicity and divides of, of uh, socioeconomics and all the, the gender, all these divides that are in our world, that, that God has eradicated those divides and made us one because of Jesus that we can all come together in faith, in faith to him. Um, and then the, the response to all that is, therefore, uh, which is how chapter 4 began. We're going to see another therefore this week in our passage. Um, therefore, since all of that stuff is true, since God has done this work in Christ, since you are a new creation in Jesus, uh, since this exists now, we will respond with these activities, with these actions. Um, and so that's so much of the commands that Paul lays out in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Since it is true that Christ has made us new, therefore this then is how we ought to respond. This is how we ought to live. Uh, and what's interesting is, is really we can, we can look at Paul's kind of articulating like this is how we should live life. Um, and, and, and we can maybe even see uh, some goodness in that reality. And, and, and even if we're not awakened to faith, we might see, okay, there's some... There's some valuable stuff in there, right? There's some good rules in there. There's some good to-dos. Some things that aren't so good are on the not-to-do list. I can agree with a lot of those things. Um, but even outside of Scripture, if we look at ourselves and we look at our society, we've got to understand and recognize that we all do this always, right? That we build for ourselves, that our culture is building for itself, and the culture is just simply a reflection of an image of the individuals in it, right? So we are all building the right life in our minds, right? We have the good life, the right life, the better life, the clean life, the holy life, the fit life, the energetic life, the educated life. We've got the life, right? It's in our hearts, it's in our minds. We, we expose of it, it's exposed in us when we talk about those people that don't do that, 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 right? Like, we've all got a list. We've all got an ideal. It is not foreign for any man to write down, this is what I think life should be like. Because really, if any of us had the platform, and every, every one of us that end up getting the platform, we all rail about that. <laughs> right? That's, that's one of the chief things that we as humans do when we gain a voice. We say, that's wrong, this is right. Right? Most of the time, shining the spotlight of rightness on ourselves or our friends or our type or our kind. 
and pointing the finger at the darkness of all the other, that, 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 right? And so we recognize that this is something that we all do. We all have a firm handle on how people ought to live. We've got it locked in. Where we go wrong often is that we overlook the spots where we don't even fulfill our own lists. Tim Keller has this fabulous illustration. He says, if you just wore a recorder around your neck for a week, maybe even just a day, and you listened to yourself rail against all the things that people ought not do, right? And again, for me, it's when I'm behind the wheel, right? Like all the, if we recorded that for a week, man, I hate it when people, I can't stand it when people, we're at the water cooler at work, did you know that they, right? We're on the phone with our mother or father, can you believe that those people, do you know what I just saw in the news, right? And then we play that back that recorder and measure our own behavior of the week on that requirement, on that stipulation, on that list of right and wrong, we will fall short of our own ideas of what's right, of our own ideas of how people ought to live. And if you don't believe that, I love you enough to tell you, please go ask a friend or a family member if indeed that's true of you, and then shut your mouth and listen to them say, yes, it's true. You're a hypocrite. I love you. You're a hypocrite. I love what God's doing in me, but I'm a hypocrite, right? That's how we are. And so we see this kind of list from Paul, and we see Paul painting a picture of how one ought to live, but what is beautiful and glorious about how Paul lays this out is that at the center of this, how you ought to live, is not Paul the Apostle. He does not stand here in Ephesians 4 and say, I am the ideal, right? Therefore, any preacher of the gospel who comes to any list of to-dos in the scripture ought not stand before their people and declare, I am the ideal here. That is never the point of Paul's writing or any other writer of the scripture. That is never the point of our proclamations. And that's not even the point of our obedience to become the ideal. The point of it all is the center figure of all things of scripture, the one who's made all of what's true in chapters one, two, and three true. Jesus Christ is at the center of all of this. And not only is he the one who's done, but done the things, filled the list, but he's also the one who's equipping and enabling us to begin to live into the reality that is his life through us. And that's what Paul gets at here as he talks about the new life in Ephesians 4. So I want to pray, and before I do, um, I want to read Ephesians 4. And I forgot to mention this. Um, some of you may know uh, Greg Wilson and Christina Wilson. They're planting Redeemer Church in Manchester. Uh, if you don't know them, uh, we're seeking a better way of kind of highlighting some of the church planters that we love and care for. Uh, around the world and so Greg has been here he's shared uh, he's been in some of our city groups and met some of you um, but they as a church over in Manchester England 
uh, are holding um, a meeting on a Sunday for the very first time today. And so we're going to pray for them uh, as they gather uh, because it's a very exciting day. I inter- uh, words. I emailed with him today about it. It was very, very cool to have his emails come from England talking about that gathering. So I'm going to read this and then we're going to pray. And in our prayer, we're going to pray for Redeemer Church and Greg and Christina. So here we go. We're going to repeat Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, not because Nathan didn't do a bang-up job reading it, but because we want to get more and more familiar with the Word. We want to always be having it wash over our minds. So here it is. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupting, corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building, up, for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity to be here in this place to gather in your name. We're thankful for your word that is, um, that is ours because of the work uh, that you've done in all of history to reveal yourself to mankind. God, we have so much to learn about you, uh, and we pray that today by your spirit our hearts and our minds would be open and ready to learn. Um, that God, that you would move us further and further into the life of Christ um, and you would move us further and further away from uh, the life of our broken pasts, and that, God, you would heal and redeem and restore, and that, God, above all things, we would see what Christian righteousness or what uh, faithfulness or obedience to your word uh, is all about, that we would deeply understand that we are not to be earning something before you with our deeds, but rather that Christ has earned for us with his deeds, and because of that, we've been made new, and out of that newness, we can now live into the life of Jesus. We pray that you would help us see that, that you would birth it into us, um, and that Christ would be further and further glorified uh, through our lives, not just in deeds, but in words, in attitude. Um, deep down into the fiber of our being, that you would be transforming us into the image of Jesus. And that you would do this for your glory, for our joy, and for the benefit of all people. We pray this in Christ's name. Also, God, we pray for Greg and Christina and Redeemer Church in Manchester. 
We thank you for starting that church. We thank you for building it through them. Um, and God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Um, that you, when your word is proclaimed and when you are lifted up, God, that you make a people um, formed by your hand uh, in a place for your particular purposes and for your glory. And so God, we pray that you'd raise up Redeemer Church to be a church that sees people meet Jesus, that sees people healed by Jesus, uh, that sees a group of people raised up that they might uh, glorify Jesus in that city uh, so that people would know who the true God is and that he loves them so much that he sent his only son for them and that he also sent a people for them that they might hear the good news of Christ. So be with them this day when they gather over there in England. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the first section of our, of our text here, um, you know, it, it can, can seem a little strong, right, if we're, if we're honest. Paul says some pretty big things about the Gentiles. And now what's interesting is most of who Paul's writing to are Gentiles. And so what Paul's talking about here isn't an ethnic group. Uh, basically, what he's talking about is people that have not yet heard and believed on Christ. Uh, and so he's making a distinction here between the Gentiles who he's writing to who believe in Jesus, uh, who have heard of Jesus, uh, who are beginning to learn the way of Jesus, uh, a distinction from them and those who have not yet heard and believed in Christ. And so if the Gentile word in there is confusing, that's kind of the, the clarification on there on that. But what's happening in this, this Gentile group, this group of, of, of non-believers, uh, is pretty, you know, blatantly labeled here by Paul. He says that they've got uh, futility of mind, um, that they're darkened in their understanding, uh, and that they are uh, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts, of heart. And before we go off here and kind of just dismiss Paul by calling him narrow-minded, right, we need to recognize what we talked about earlier, and that is that we all build lists, right, that we all have kind of the wrong and the right type of things in our mind. And often, we talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about the hostility of the dividing wall that Christ has broken down, often we can look at people that don't do things the way we would prefer or believe things the, the way we think they should believe or um, do certain actions or not do other actions or whatnot, that often we can just dismiss an entire group of people by categorizing them and then just kind of demonizing them and pushing them off to the side. Now, Paul's not doing that here, and the reason we know Paul's not doing that here is because of what Paul said earlier in his letter in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it's really important to have in mind what Paul's already said as we read about what Paul's saying now, okay? So here's the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
That's what Paul said earlier. And who does Paul put in the group of people he's talking about in Ephesians 2? Himself. He's like, we, right? He writes about these dramatically detrimental states of being, and he says, I, we, you and me and we were like this, right? This was our state, dead. We were unawakened to spiritual truth, right? We were led astray by deceptive practices, by dark and evil schemes. We followed this nature that was in us toward wrath. We deserved God's wrath in that place. That's where we have all been. So turn the page to chapter 4, and Paul just delineates now. There are people still there, but that's not where we are anymore. Why? Because God, verse 4 of chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, loved us with a great love. Because of what Christ has done, he has changed the inner nature of who we are. So we were like children of wrath, but now we are adopted daughters and sons, heirs of the king, sitting at the very table of the family of God, feasting on all of his goodness. We were, but now we are, but there are still others that are in that place. And what he does here is he lays out kind of the distinctions of what they are still like and how we are different now because of what Jesus has done in us. And so we look at this list and it kind of seems strong and it kind of seems like Paul's coming on a little forceful until we realize, okay, Paul's in one way actually talking about how he's somewhat, uh, how he was at one time and how God has changed him. And Paul isn't just sitting here saying, listen, man, everybody's crappy and dumb and bad, and I'm good, right? What he's saying here is that God is good, that God is right, that God is holy, and that he is loving and just and true and perfection, and that we are not, and we needed rescue and now we've been rescued, and others still need rescue. Paul illuminates this reality and talks about it as the old self. He says, this is what we were like, but it's not what we are like now. And the uniqueness of the Christian teaching is not that we have done something to make ourselves different, but that Jesus has done something to make us different. And that the very teaching of Christ, the very proclamation of the gospel, has in hand with it the declaration that we are different people now. And so Paul lays out what the Gentiles continue to be like and says that's not how we ought to live. We should not be following the passions of our old self anymore. We should be living into the reality of what God has made. Because this old self is corrupt. This old self is deceived. That old way of living is ignorant and unwise and dead to God. And so this isn't a bash or a smackdown on those that aren't living right. This is an illumination of the difference that God wants to make. And he'll do that as he unfolds the rest of 
our passage today and actually kind of the rest of the book. And so he says these Gentiles, their minds are corrupt, that they pursue selfishness, that that pursuit inevitably ends in the pursuit of rampant sensuality, just doing whatever feels good, that it leads toward this hardness of heart to the things of God, which is just simply a rejection of the authority of God and his laying out of what is right in life, how we ought to live. We reject that when we walk in the foolishness of our own minds, and that's what we see so much in the world around us. And so Paul's trying to tell the Ephesian church, you shouldn't look the same. If you're in Christ, there should be changes that have happened and are happening. We ought not just blend in perfectly with the world around us. We should be in the world as Christ taught, but not of the world in a way that God is making us distinct in the midst of the world that we live in. So he separates this passage with this division in verse 20 that says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And he says some seemingly the same thing again and again here. That's not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so there's a a real need as we come into this understanding of who God is to be taught and to learn that there's an actual instruction that happens as we follow after Jesus and that instruction includes the delineation of there's a way that is life and there's a way that is death and you ought to follow the way that is life why because Christ is making you new and so we learn of Christ as we see him taught in the scriptures as we read about him in the scriptures We hold this firm conviction that that all of Scripture continues to point us to this greater story of God working redemption through Jesus Christ. So even as we read things in the Old Testament, we see them leading towards the fulfillment of Jesus. And everything that we read in the New Testament, we see a pointing to what Jesus did and the implications of that in our lives. We see in all of Scripture that we are to be learning continually of Christ. And Jesus is not just the substance of the teaching but he's also the environment or the institution of the teaching. We are taught in Jesus. This is an interesting little phrase that Paul puts in here, that we are taught in Jesus. What does it mean to be taught in Jesus? It's kind of strange. It's a little bit interesting. And I think the way that we are taught in Jesus has everything to do with kind of uh, the mood or the atmosphere of how we're being taught. Right? So like if I'm in elementary school and I'm being taught a subject, there's a particular direction of that teaching, and that's to learn, to lay a foundation for future teaching. That's what the elementary school education is for, to, to prepare me and to move me on to further learning. If I'm in law school, I'm being taught about constitutional law, it's that I might argue it, to either argue for it or against it or to find a way around it but I'm learning it for a particular purpose. If I'm in a trade school, if I'm learning in that school, I'm learning a skill that I might master it and go do good in the world through the work of my hands. And so the environment dictates for the learner and it gives us much of the motivation behind the learning. So what does it mean to learn in Christ? Well, I think it has so much to do with knowing what the learning is leading us toward. 
Is the learning leading us toward earning something? If so, I don't think we're learning in Christ, right? So the learning in Christ is not that I'm being trained to be good so that God will love me more. That's not what learning in Christ is, right? It's not learning how to make God happier because of my better behavior. It is not learning so that I might earn a spot at the family table with Brother Jesus. I'm not motivated by pressure to perform as I learn. And the reason this is true is because of what Paul taught in the earlier sections of Ephesians, because of Christ's work for me and what it gives me. It gives me all those things that often I'm prone to think I have to earn through doing. Right? And this is the fractured reality of kind of religion in a man's world, in, a mankind, in mankind's world. That we often take, I should do these things as obligation to earn. Right? We think often, and this is, I mean, if you poll our country, basically, what does it mean to be a Christian? The response is, well, you do good. I mean, it's just the, the basic understanding of Christianity in our country. What does it mean to be a Christian? To, to be gooder? You know, to, to try to be gooder? To be better? To, right? Like, it's kind of the basic understanding. But if we're to learn in Christ, we understand we're not earning something through action because you can't earn what's already been given by grace. So to learn in Christ, we've got to detach our minds from the idea that I'm getting something through my obedience, right? That idea is captivity to you, and it will chain you down and make religion painful, guilt-ridden, and dark. That you're doing, that you're obeying to get something, to prove yourself to God to earn more of his love or to get a grade or maybe to get a car or a house or something. <laughs> like, if I'm good, then I'll, God will let me get that thing. Like, what kind of a dad do we think God is? He's a dad who's given us, what Paul said earlier in Ephesians, all things in Jesus, all spiritual blessings are yours in Christ. Before a single command is laid out in this book, Paul says that that's true. That Christ has given us everything. So I'm not obeying towards some kind of merit. I am obeying out of the attainment of that which I could never earn. Right? So I'm not looking at a list of to-dos and thinking if I do these things, I'll get something. Right? I start by looking at the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and I go, I have something. I have something precious and eternal and spiritual and never-ending and irreplaceable and golden and kept by God. I have that. Now, because I have that, my nature is being changed. From the inside out, I begin to live along the lines of these commands that Paul's laying out. That is so important to understand that in Christ we are being taught 
but what is the direction of the teaching? What are we going toward? My teacher is the teaching, and he's grading based on his execution of the teaching. My teacher, Jesus Christ, is the teaching, and he's grading out of his execution. Right? Your deeds aren't what get you the grade. Christ's deeds get you the grade. And it's a flying A-plus every time. Christ earned for you through his perfect obedience. And so we say this, I am a new human through the work of Jesus Christ. God has made me this way. My old way of living, it's dead and it's dying. My new way of living is life and it's alive. Like Paul said in, in Galatians 2.20, a beautiful statement that says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul lays out what this new self is, right? In verse 24, he says, we've put on this new self. And what is this new self? It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Verse 22 says, my old self belongs to my former manner of life, that dead, deceived, evil, corrupt way. That's, that's the way my old life was. And there's corruption in that old life. There's deceit in that old life. But what's in this new life? This new life is true righteousness. This new life is holiness. This new life is being made into what God has created, created after the likeness of him. And so all of these commands that Paul lays out in this chapter and in the next chapter and in the next chapter after that are illustrations of what the new life looks like. And they're calls to live out that new life. Because that's where life is. Because we know to go back to our former way of living is indeed to retreat into death. But in verse 23, Paul makes a really important statement. So he says we're putting off the old self, we're putting on the new self, but in verse 23 he says we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So most of our actions stem first from our minds, right? What we do is in response to how we're thinking. And so Paul says here that we as followers of Jesus, we need to have a renewal of our minds. We need the things that we think that are right and wrong to be renewed, to be washed. Because in our own sinful, broken nature, we're going to think the wrong things. But as God illuminates to us the word, we're going to begin to think the things that God thinks. To know what's right because God knows that it's right. To know what's good because God's called it good. To know what's holy because God has made it holy. And to understand and begin to, to, to grapple with the reality that sometimes our own minds are wrong. <laughs> to be humble enough to say, sometimes my ideal is the wrong ideal. And to begin to learn to come to Christ and to come to the Word, to be able to be renewed again and again, to see what indeed is true and right and good and holy. John Stott says that Christian righteousness depends on the constant renewing of our minds. It's interesting that he doesn't say on the constant 
uh, basis of doing better or trying harder. It's on the constant basis of remembering what's true, remembering that I'm not earning through my doing, remembering that Jesus is righteousness, remembering that blessed are the poor in spirit, remember, remembering that blessed are those who weep and mourn, remembering that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, remembering that blessed are the peacemakers, remembering the life of Jesus, that he served and he loved and he laid down himself for the sake of others, being renewed in that, set, or in that mindset. And as we're renewed in that mindset, we see the life of Jesus beginning to be birthed out of us. The reality is, is that the new self is really putting on Christ himself. And we see often in scripture, it's said in this way, that it is Christ in us. Galatians 2.20 said that. Elsewhere, Paul says that. That it is actually Christ in us. And so, like I said at the beginning, we've got this idea of how the world should live to make everything better, right? And in our minds, we've built this construct. And what we have to understand is that that's wrong. That somewhere in that construct, there is brokenness. There is incorrect parameters. That there are biases and, and, and bad judgments and even some of my own sinful preferences, that I would just say, ooh, it'd be better if everybody else was like this, because then I could be free to be like that. Like, we construct this in our minds in all sorts of incorrect ways, and so to come in Christ is to reconstruct that ideal. And at the center of that new ideal is Christ and Christ himself. And then we get to say, oh my goodness, if the world lived as Christ lived, back it up, oh my goodness. If I lived as Christ lived. Whew. Wow. Right? Like that changes my weekly dialogue. Does it not? Because mostly I'm in conversations, it's at work, it's on the phone, it's through text, it's on Twitter and posting and whatever. I'm in these conversations illuminating the bad activities of the people that aren't doing what I should do. Right? Or if you're a a workplace where you've got authorities, this is generally how conversations go. Oh, they're clueless, right? The ones making the decisions said that we should do it this way. What a bunch of idiots. Don't they know that if we did it this way, the world would be great, right? If I were blank, <laughs> then I would understand, and don't worry, I would treat you all better, right? I mean, like, this is, this is workplace talk, just filled with this the world is wrong and they should be right in this way. So when we turn in that way of thinking and turn to the way of thinking in Christ, we discover, okay, the ideal is no longer my ideal, but Christ. And when I recognize that Christ is the ideal, I humbly come under the reality that I'm not living in that ideal. Therefore, I can look differently at every single other person who's not living according to that ideal because I'm no longer on a pedestal looking down on them, right? But I'm, my, I'm on my knees looking eye to eye with them and saying things like Paul said in Ephesians 2, that we, we are so far from perfect and renewing our minds, remembering again and again, I am not the ideal, right? As great as so-and-so is, they're not the ideal. As great as this ideology might be, there's holes in it. It's not even the ideal. 
as strong as I feel about this political persuasion, it is not 100% perfect. It is not the ideal. Right? The ideal is Christ. And when he's the ideal, I can let go of being the one that everybody measures up to. And I can begin to see that we all have fallen short of the glory of God and are in deep need of this renewal. And so that changes not only our disposition to others who aren't seeking to obey Jesus like we're seeking to obey Jesus, but it also changes how we feel about ourselves if we do happen to stumble into obedience to Jesus. <laughs> right? Like, as we live out Christ's commands, we don't think, ha, and then point down at other, everybody else. We go, oh my God, Jesus did a miracle. I just obeyed him. <laughs> right? We, we, we erupt in worship and we say, the Spirit is alive in me because I actually did something for the good of another person. I mean, I've tried here and there, and I've stumbled through that thing, and I, occasionally I've done something that looks somewhat like Jesus, but now all of a sudden I'm serving somebody, and it's for their good. Oh, praise God, he's alive. He's in me, and he's working himself out through me. That is glorious, and it's not because I did something better, or I earned it on my own, or I just white-knuckled obedience. It's because of Christ in me. And this is what Christ in me looks like. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we see here very clearly listed old and new. Paul says this is the old way and this is the new way. And Christ is moving us toward the new way. So instead of falsehood, we speak truth. Why? Right? One of the important things as we look at any command in Scripture is the why. Because God said so. Yes, but there's so much more than that. The deep why of all the commands of Scripture is this life. Real life. There's good, real, beautiful life to be lived. To God's glory, for my joy, and for the benefit of others. And the commands of Scripture help us to see what that life is. And here Paul delineates that life from the death of what it was. So he says, put away falsehood and put on truth. Why? Because we belong to one another. Right? Truth is beneficial, not just for me, but for others. So let's walk into truth. It's life for us, Paul says. Walking in falsehood and lies and pretense is damaging. Damaging to your soul and to those around you. Damaging to community and relationships and the functionality of the world. So we put away falsehood and we, we, we walk into life. We walk into truth. 
Paul says to put away sinful anger. He doesn't say, don't be angry. It's really interesting, right? He says, don't be angry in sin. So that's strange. I thought anger was sin. Sometimes, yes, not all the time, right? How do we know? Well, we look at Jesus. Did Jesus ever get angry? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Right? It wasn't a fitful, momentary, I'm irritated, so I'm going to punch back moment. It was a building, centuries-long process of perverting the temple of God. Jesus, the Son of Man, who lived from all time, eternity past, born of a virgin, shows up on scene, and what does he do? The anger of God comes out at those who would pervert the temple and make people have enough money to worship God or have a certain ethnicity to worship God. Jesus cracks whips, turns over tables, scares people away. Righteous anger. So Paul says, be angry, do not sin. So there is a righteous anger. And we read it in Psalm 5, right? If God is not a God who can be angry at evil, then he is not a God who loves. Do not give me a God who's okay with a rapist. Do not give me a God who is not angered by racism. Do not, do not give me that God. I don't want anything to do with it. Right? God has anger toward evil. It's a righteous anger. There's a wrath that is essential to the holiness and the love of God. Right? So Paul says, don't sin in your anger. Right? But honestly, maybe some of us need to get more angry sometimes and find out how to funnel that into righteous responses. Right? Some of our work, some of our efforts, some of our tireless pursuit of rescuing others should be a response to evil that almost looks like anger. I want to do away with this in this world because God wants to as well. The motivation for dealing with anger in the right way is to pursue godliness rather than to be a tool of the devil. So Paul makes a really close association between anger and the devil. It's an interesting association. When we turn ourselves out over to fits of anger, to unrighteous anger, to self-centered anger, we're giving a foothold to Satan himself. When we are angry and do not sin, when we live like Jesus in righteous anger, we're pursuing godliness. Paul contrasts stealing and hardworking people, right? He says, the thief should stop. Stop plotting on how to get more stuff with less effort and start plotting on how to give a lot of effort for less stuff, <laughs> right? Stop figuring out shortcuts and go join in the hard work of recreating the world in a way that God is glorified. Why? Beautiful why. Ready to share with those in need. That's awesome, right? The motivation for hard work is others, right? Which points us to this very important part of the whole thing. What our hard work gains for us 
on some level should be given away. Right? It cuts to the heart. It hurts. We often think our hard work's for us. Right? I'll never forget this one moment I was invited over to this house. Very, very big house. Very, very nice house. Nothing wrong with big and nice houses. I said to them, nice house. I love nice houses. My dad used to build houses. I love houses. The response was, yes, we worked hard for this. Not a terrible response. But if all we're working hard for is a thing that's later for us, then we're missing the motivation of hard work in the scriptures. The motivation for hard work in the scriptures that we might share. Wow. That, that changes the way we look at work, right? That changes the way we look at earning, at paychecks, and all of that type of stuff. We should be working because God's caring for our family through that work, and we should be working because God wants to care for the world through our work. And so we give up thievery, and we work hard. We also see putting off of corrupt talk and to have wholesome speak come out of our mouths. Why? We want to have speak that builds others up. We want to say things that help to encourage people around us. We want to speak words that are fitting to the occasion that people that hear what we say might get grace from it. Holy moly. That's possible as Christ lives out through you, that in your words, people will receive grace. That's a profound reality. And it's a very strong distinction against what we're typically speaking in our world. Right? Because, I mean poisonous and gossiping and backbiting and comparison and all these filthy things that come out of our mouths. And finally, he says, get rid of the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander, all of these things and the malice. And what do we put on instead? We put on compassion. Verse 32, as we kind of wrap up here. The last half of that verse re-emphasizes the motivation of all of our living into the righteousness of Christ, and that is to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are ever motivated by the action of God toward us when we were undeserving. Right? The deep motivations of all of our behaviors toward other people, all of our good and righteous and wholesome and helpful and beneficial and grace-giving behaviors, the deep motivation behind all of those is that we know what it's like to receive, to be on the receiving end of behavior like that. To be paid attention to by someone who has a lot better things to pay attention to, and yet they still pay attention to us. Right? to know that we stand in a place where we deserve to be spoken ill of, right? We know it. We know some of the stuff that's said about us is deserved, right? We know it. We know in the deep recesses of our heart, we understand that there are darknesses and short-sightedness and, and, and sometimes just flat-out evil intentions still in our hearts. We know that's true. And what has Christ spoken of us? He has spoken your mind. I love you. I've given my life for you. 
It, it, we didn't deserve it. And that's what he spoke to us. And so that changes how we speak of others. Right? All of these outward behaviors toward others is motivated by what we've seen Jesus do to us. He's loved you. He's saved you. He's pursued you. He's spoken well of you. He's called you to a greater purpose. Right? He's identified with you when he came and he suffered and he died. He's loved you by serving you. That motivates us into all sorts of righteous needs that Christ is living out through us. And so living into these realities that Paul lays out here is living into the life of Jesus. And we know because we've seen it, because we've watched it in our own life and we've watched it unfold in other people's lives, that the life of Christ that is lived for others, it benefits them. It brings them joy. It, bring, it brought Jesus joy. And increasingly, life like this leads to the mending of the world. God heals as Christ lives his life through us. And that's a beautiful thing to participate in. To be a part of the church that Jesus has built that is living outward towards the world like Jesus has lived towards them changes things. It amends things. It calms conversations. It creates dialogue. It brings welcomed interactions that were previously rejected. It calls those who are low and despised by the world loved and treasured and welcomed. It sacrifices self for the sake of another. It gives even when giving hurts. It works hard to bring benefit to others. It's the perfect world that we want, and Jesus is building it. It'll never be finished, but it's at least getting started, and it's starting in you. Amen? And as you live it out, you aren't earning a thing because Christ has earned everything for you. And so let him live that reality out through us as he increasingly mends the broken world around us and heals our own hearts and leads us into true life rather than the old life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this day. We thank you for Jesus because Jesus shows us this new life. We know that we will never fulfill these commands perfectly. But God, we also know that you desire deeply for us to live into them for your glory, for our own joy, and for the benefit of the world around us. We just pray, God, that that, that kind of linchpin aspect of obedience would become more and more clear to us. And that is that we're not obeying to earn something before you. That we're not obeying out of pressured obligation. That we're not obeying just simply out of duty, but rather we seek to walk in these ways in obedience to you for the glory of Jesus, that we might have life and joy because it's our delight and because it's, it's life. It's real life, it's full life, it's restored life, it's beautiful life, it's liberating life. And God, that's what you want us to live in. So might we be people that repent of or turn away from the old life and turn to, in the power of the Spirit, the new life in Christ. God, it's a miraculous thing for this to happen in us. And so we look to you to do the miraculous work in us. We are not strong enough. Might you be glorified 
in our weakness. And might your name shine around us because of your work in and through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.